Good morning. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, so thankful that you're here or that you're at home watching. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's my joy to open up God's word and try to feed you through that word. Uh, let me pray for us again in anticipation of taking a look at this passage. Let's pray. Father, we do submit ourselves to you by submitting to your word. Prepare us, God, to live by losing. Help us to know what that means and what it looks like. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, on the morning of November the 4th of this year, the day after the election, no matter the results, there will be a throng of people, among them confessing Christians, that will wake up in despair and disillusionment. And I think in part, the reason for that will be because it'll be a failure to really think deeply about this passage. This morning, as it was mentioned, we, turn, we return to our study of the gospel according to Luke. Uh, we find in this passage, we find in this book, that Luke is writing to us in order that we would have certainty regarding the things of the king and his kingdom. And we've known and we've seen that the king is, in fact, Christ Jesus the Lord, the one that is born of a virgin, the one that is uh, rejoiced ever by the angels. We've seen that in Christ Jesus, he's the one that reveals the hearts of men. And we've seen that time and again, haven't we? The way that Jesus is revealing the hearts of men. From the ordinary to the rich and the powerful, anybody that comes in contact with Christ, he's like a touchstone wherein their hearts are revealed. And I wonder how our study of Luke has revealed your heart? How have our study now, as we've been in this since last September, a year now, how has Christ revealed your heart? Has he challenged you in some ways that maybe you didn't know that were, uh, you needed to be challenged? Has he confirmed the things that you have believed? What has Christ done? How has Jesus revealed your heart in this study? And what has it done for us, Restoration Church? Our study in this book, what's it done for us? Uh, one of the things that I've been praying from the very beginning of this study of Luke is that uh, the Lord would do more than we could ask or imagine as a result of our time in this word. And I believe that he has done that. And I believe that he'll do more. But the reality is, beloved, we cannot stay the same as a result of our time in his word. So Lord willing, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke now. No more breaks. Lord willing. Who knows? We have to say Lord willing a lot these days. But as far, as far as we know, we'll be in the Luke, book of Luke now from here all the way to the end uh, of the year. And so amidst our nation's turmoil that goes on around us, we will be studying at the same time the betrayal of Christ, the arrest of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And so what a fortuitous, what a providential thing to be studying in these days. May they orient us, I pray. And so we left off, if you remember a little over a month ago, we left off back in Luke 17. Uh, and if you remember, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, set his face toward Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. And along the way, we saw in Luke 17, where we left off, remember Jesus cleansed those 10 lepers. And there was only one of those 10 lepers that actually returned to Jesus. And he happened to be not even a Jew. He was a Gentile, a Samaritan. And he came and he bowed at the feet of Christ in thanksgiving. Uh, and so this morning, we come to a passage wherein Jesus will uh, build off of that story 
and yet again give us another jarring reminder of his impending return. Now, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that I've learned as we've walked through the book of Luke is that I've seen more about the tenderness of Christ, but I've also seen a lot the toughness of Christ. And this morning, we see some of that toughness. We, we see when we read this passage that Jesus isn't playing games, guys. Jesus is not after mere sentimentality. He's not after just mere tradition, going through the motions. He's not after niceness. Jesus, we find in these passages, is calling us to die to ourselves and to live to him. And that's, what, that's what I mean, what I think Jesus means by this passage in verse 33 of living by losing. That's the big idea this morning, living by losing. This notion of dying to self, living to him in advance of his return. Or as a, one way to think about that is you need to remember Lot's wife. That'll make more sense to you, hopefully, by the end of our time together. So take a look at the passage there, Luke 17, verse 20 and 21. We see there the Pharisees are asking some more questions of Jesus. Uh, and we recall, remember the Pharisees, these are these, uh, these are these group of guys that have created this office that is in addition to, uh, they've created this office that's in addition to all the things that were already existing. In other words, this is a created office in the ancient Israel, created by man, wherein these guys have added a bunch of rules on top of Scripture. Uh, these guys are kind of a hyper-fundamentalistic crew that goes beyond the Word of God in order to attempt to justify themselves through their good religious behavior. That's who these Pharisees are. They kind of have a selfish religion that postures as though they were devoted to God, when in reality they're really just devoted to themselves. Not unlike some today. These guys, they question Jesus, though, about when the kingdom of God would come. Now, Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom, isn't he? He's regularly talking about this kingdom. This is kind of Jesus' own stump speech, the kingdom of God. Uh, we recall when we look in the book of Mark, when Jesus starts his public ministry, Jesus' first words out of his mouth there are, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus regularly talking about this kingdom. And so it's a fair question for the Pharisees to ask, well, when's this kingdom going to come, Jesus? And Jesus responds to these Pharisees in verses 20 and 21 by saying, essentially, you guys don't get it. You don't get it. My kingdom doesn't come in ways that you would expect. My kingdom doesn't come, as he says here, it doesn't come in ways that you can observe. It doesn't have any campaign headquarters doesn't have any national capital, doesn't have an army, doesn't have a budget, doesn't have a national flag. And yet at the same time, Jesus says in verse 21, the kingdom of God is actually in your midst. It's in the midst of you. It's actually hidden in plain sight. Now we can understand the Pharisees' confusion about the kingdom, can't we? I mean, this a kingdom that's hidden in plain sight, a kingdom that is there but not seen, Right? And the way that Jesus talks about this kingdom, this kingdom is powerful, more powerful than any kingdom of man, and yet you can't see it? A little confusing, right? We can understand the Pharisees' confusion. In fact, we, we can think of somebody else. We can think of Pilate. Remember Pilate, that Roman governor, wherein he questions Jesus at, his, uh, at the time of his crucifixion, just before it. And Jesus, after uh, Jesus, after Pilate questions him about his kingdom. Jesus responds to Pilate by saying that his kingdom is not of this world. That if it was, that he would have his servants would be fighting for him. And even when we turn to the disciples, they seem to be confused by the kingdom too, aren't they? 
Even the disciples themselves, who we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after the resurrection of Christ, the, uh, the disciples themselves are saying, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So even the disciples are a bit confused by the kingdom. So we can understand the confusion of the Pharisees in this passage. So Jesus is saying here that kingdom is coming in ways that you cannot observe, and yet it is there. It's in the midst of you. Slide down to verse 22 there, and you'll notice the switch. You see that switch from verses 20, 21 down to 22. Now he's addressing, in verse 22, he's addressing the disciples. From here to the end of the passage, or the end of the chapter, he's addressing the disciples. And since this is given to us in Scripture, this is an explanation not only for them, but it's also for us. And Jesus says in verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So if you're wondering, friend, what this notion of the Son of Man is, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a favorite uh, title because it's a messianic title. It's a description. It's an answering of all of God's promises. The Son of Man, uh, the way that Jesus refers to himself, is the evidence of Jesus that the fact that he understands himself to be the answer of all of God's promises. But he says there that there's going to come a day when the disciples are going to want to see, behold, look, touch this kingdom. Or as he says, the days of the Son of Man. In other words, they're going to be, want to be like these Pharisees. And of course, we know that's true. Remember that verse I just read you in Acts chapter 1. They're going to want to see it. And Jesus says, you won't see it. In other words, Jesus is teaching here the kingdom is going to be a spiritual reality for a time, and yet it will be physically obscured. Jesus is saying there's going to be a time when it's spiritually present, but it's physically obscured. You're not going to be able to see it. And then Jesus goes on to say, listen, guys are going to come around, and they're going to say, you can see it. Go get on a plane, get on Southwest, get a plane ticket, and come on over, take a look at this guy. We found the kingdom. Come take a look at it. And Jesus says, don't listen to those guys. We can think about the amount of pain and suffering that could have been saved by the Branch Davidians or those that followed Jim Jones to Jonestown had they heeded the wisdom of Christ here. Jesus is emphasizing the powerful, pervasive, and yet imperceptible nature of the kingdom. You cannot see it until you see it. There's going to be this time when it's going to sort of overlap when you can't see it, but then you will see it. There's this overlap between the kingdom coming in and then it being consummated, inaugurated here, but not seen. So before he returns, we find that it's going to be here. Right? Then secondly, though you're not going to see it until you see it. And that's what comes next. Take a look at verse, if you look at verse 24, Jesus says there uh, that as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And did you notice the singular nature of that word, day? Every time Jesus refers to his day, it's often in the singular because he's referencing the end. This is the, the last day. He understands it to be the end of the age. His return is the beginning of the end. All the days leading up to that day are just that. They're days. But there will be a day when the days of the imperceptible, they will then become perceptible. They will become seen. You can look at it. And so the kingdom will be in the midst of you, but you won't see it, but then you will see it like a bright flash of lightning that covers the sky. So in other words, no one will miss the day of consummation 
of Jesus' kingdom, the day of his return. That's what he means there in verse 24. A day's going to come, you can't see it, then boom, it's going to flash like a light in the sky. It's going to go, you'll notice, from one end to the other. You're all going to see it. You guys ever been taking a walk? Maybe sometime you're taking a walk on a cloudy kind of day. The clouds are a bit ominous. And as you're walking, a big poof, flash of lightning comes. And what do you do? You kind of flinch like this. And everybody around you kind of flinches. Right, you can't miss it, right? That lightning, that flash, you can't miss it. And Jesus is saying that's what it's going to be like upon his return. It's going to be like a bright flash in the sky. Everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to flinch. You're going to see it. You won't be able to miss it. But until that day, it's going to be imperceptible. In fact, look at verse 25. First, he says he needs to purchase that day by shedding his blood on the cross. That's what he says in verse 29. He's got to purchase the end of days by going to the cross, by suffering. That's a critical reality that we'll come back to at the end, but stay with the flow of thought here. Jesus goes on talking about the, this notion of the days leading up to that day of his return. He continues talking about what that's going to be like. And he does that in verse 26 and verse 28. And in those two verses, Jesus then explains two well-known days of judgment. Even in our day, we know about these. In those verses, he goes on to explain the days of Noah, what, they were, what the days of Noah were like, and then also the days of uh, Lot were like. And he says, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. And so look down at verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot. Same thing. So you've got days of Noah, days of Lot. It's going to be like, in these days, it's going to be like those days in advance of his return. So these two days that he's using to help us understand this day uh, will orient us today. And what he's doing, by the way, guys, if you're unfamiliar with the teaching of the Bible, Noah and Lot, these are two guys that we read about in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. And so if you were to ask Jesus based off this, this is just another affirmation of Jesus' affirmation and trustworthiness of Scripture. So if you were to ask Jesus, do you believe in the literalness of a global flood? Do you believe in the literalness of a Noah and a, and a Lot? Well, according to this passage, we would say that Jesus would say, yes, he does. But the days of Noah and the days of Lot, according to Jesus, are helpful to help us understand these days in advance of Jesus' return. Our own day helps us understand. So what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, when we go back in the, uh, back in the book of Genesis, we see in Genesis 6, 5, quote, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what it was like in the days in advance of the judgment in the days of Noah. And then when we read about the days in advance of the judgment in Sodom with Lot, we read about that in Genesis 19. And there we read about this instance of some visitors coming into the city of Sodom, and then they coming once they see that they go into the house of Lot, they go and try to beat the door down in order to try to know, the passage says, to know those visitors that came in. And so after Lot refused them, they tried to break down his doors to get at these visitors. This is what it was like, according to Jesus, in the days uh, in advance of the city of uh, Sodom. But in both instances, both in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, in both instances, they're marked by rampant rebellion, sexual immorality, godlessness. Or in a word, guys, just, sin just self-centeredness, just sort of doing whatever they want to do. These events would have been known to the hearers of Jesus, including his disciples. They would have been known about the, the severity of the judgment that came to the earth in Noah's day or in Sodom. Uh, they would have been known by all. And in fact, Jesus says, if you look in verse 27, he references the fact that the flood, quote, destroyed them all. 
And look at verse 29. Jesus references, quote, the fire and the sulfur that rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So according to Jesus, when the kingdom of God is consummated, when it comes in power, when Jesus returns, he's going to then destroy all. That is, unless you flee like Noah to the ark. In the days preceding that day, you won't be able to see it like you will see earthly kingdoms. And what you will see will be likened to the days of Noah and Lot with rampant rebellion existing. And then, like the flash of lightning, judgment came. It's going to be total. But notice, guys, what Jesus emphasizes about the days of Noah and Lot. They would have known about the rebellion. They would have known about the judgment. But look at how Jesus describes the days of Noah and Lot. He says, they're, he says they're marked by eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. And in Sodom, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Now notice, there's nothing wrong with those things mentioned. But matter of fact, there's good things that are happening there. They're all very ordinary. Things that go on today. Things that go on right now. And that's Jesus' point. Jesus and the author Luke knew that we tend to think of those extraordinary elements of these stories, of how rebellious those days were, and that, of course, is true. Jesus affirmed those realities since he affirmed the judgment that came to them. But here, Jesus warns the disciples, and he warns all of us, that the days preceding the judgment are those that are, yes, marked by rebellion, but they're also marked by a kind of ordinariness. In other words, Jesus warns us that the days preceding the day will seem ordinary. And then the end will come. The kingdom will be in there, but things will just be sort of normal. And then the end will come, like a flash of lightning in the sky. Now on Friday, we celebrated the 19th anniversary of September the 11th, 2001. Uh, 19 years ago. I'm old enough to remember what I was doing on that day. Uh, the night before, I went to bed like I always did. When I woke up, I woke up like I always did. I had my bowl of, you know, probably crackling oat bran like I always did. Uh, got dressed and got in my car, was driving to the office when I turned the radio on. That morning, everything was ordinary. That morning was just like all the other hundreds of days in advance or days preceding that day. And for most of America, it was a normal day. And little did we know that that day, that morning, when we woke up, the world would never be the same. That's what it'll be like, according to Christ. So ordinary, so mundane, until it's not. Jesus goes on to say in verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Underline that. When the Son of Man is revealed, it'll be ordinary to when Christ is actually seen for who he is. In verse 31, he says that when he shows up, there's no point in trying to get your stuff together. There's, there's no time for that. Verse 34, he says, in a moment, two will be in the bed, one will be taken. Two will be kind of paving a street, one will be left, the other will be taken. And the disciples say, well, where? Where's all this going to happen, Jesus? And he ends with this warning of an ominous sign of signals of vultures hovering over dead bodies. In other words, what he means by that is Jesus' return, just as it is clear like the lightning in the sky, so will the pervasiveness of death be clear to all. The vultures will be hovering over. You'll see the death of all. 
all like it was in the days of Noah and Lot will be destroyed. That is, again, unless you're like Noah and you flee to the ark. So the way I see it, friends, is when we take a look at this passage, we have one of three ways to responding to this passage. The first is just to dismiss it all as the stuff of science fiction. Kind of you know, apocalyptic foolishness of ancient man. Just kind of drummed up stuff. It's just trying to manipulate people to be more religious. That's all this really is. That's one way to respond. And friend, if that's you, let me just say, first off, I'm thankful for your honesty. Just say that. It's good for just to say it instead of act like it's not, like you think it's something else. So thankful. I'm thankful for your honesty. I'm thankful that you're here to listen, to consider these things. But if I may, friend, let me put one tiny rock in your shoe. Don't lose sight, friend, of the fact that Jesus is explicitly teaching that two things are going to be happening. That the power, the extraordinary spiritual reality of the kingdom is going to be here, but you won't be able to see it. He literally just taught that. He also said that things will be very ordinary. In other words, your response is actually just like what Jesus says it's going to be. So I wonder, is the kingdom of God hidden in plain sight to you? In other words, might there be more to what you see? That's the first response. The second response to this passage would be to agree that these warnings are a coming reality. You believe these are all true things. But like those Pharisees, you think you're safe. You're fine. You're religious. You've said the prayer. You're, you're here at church on a Sunday morning. Look at this. You're at home, right? You, you took your Sunday morning out to watch a service online. And while the day is coming, you've got nothing to worry about. But in reality, you do have something to worry about. Because though your confession would lead you to believe that you are safe, your practice of that confession looks very similar to that of the first response of unbelief. In other words, your days are marked by a kind of normalcy on par with those that lived in Sodom. No, you certainly aren't knocking anybody's doors down to know them, but you do You find yourself eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, in other words, the presence of the extraordinary power of the kingdom of God, it doesn't seem to be having an effect of, on you. The prospect of the imminent return of Christ doesn't seem to have changed you. Your focus instead is on eating and drinking, buying and selling in this world. Your focus is on establishing kingdoms here. You're preoccupied with your life, your interests, your issues, your kingdom. And you want others around you to affirm that kingdom. Friends, keep in mind that in these days of expressive individualism, it's possible to choose to identify yourself with Christ in the same way that someone identifies themselves as a Nats fan. It's just another kind of piece of flair on a backpack. Just another kind of tradition that you choose to associate yourself to. It's another kind of service provider, very, or a little different than, say, Verizon or Sprint. Just sort of the way that you understand yourself. Just kind of added Jesus as an insurance policy of sorts. Friend, remember that Jesus is regularly addressing religious people. 
He's speaking to people that go to church, that read their Bibles. And so you say to me, well, Nathan, how can I be sure in advance of his return? How, how can I be sure? Nathan, can I even be sure? Well, friend, the answer to the second question is yes, you can be sure in advance of his coming. The Apostle John makes this so clear in 1 John 5, 13. He writes, I write these things to you. In other words, Bible is here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John's saying, this Bible is here, it's in the word, so that you can know you have eternal life in advance of Jesus' return. So you can know it. The question is, how can we be sure? Well, that's the third response of repentance and faith. Repenting and believing. First would be that of unbelief. Second would be the kind of Pharisee of, yeah, I'm safe, but I'm really not. Third would be the truth of repenting and believing. Take a look at verse 25. After talking about the unmistakable reality of his return, he says, but first, and then notice the word that comes next. Circle that word. But first, I must, must, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. All of us suffer. All of us suffer. But it was only Jesus that must suffer. Because it is only Jesus' suffering that can save us from the death and destruction that is coming upon his return. So the reason why he must suffer, Jesus must suffer, is because our sin must be paid for by a holy God if we're going to be with him and enjoy his kingdom. Take a look at what comes next in chapter 18. It's that familiar word that we use a lot in our current cultural moment, that notion of justice. Think about this next week. That phrase that we've uttered, no justice, no peace. Friends, that's exactly right. The question is, have you used that phrase to evaluate your own life? If God's justice for our sins is not met, there can be no peace with God upon his return. Justice must be served to the thousands of ways that you and I go about eating and drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building with little or no care to God. Justice must be served for the dozens of times that we go about building our own glory and are, have little to no interest in the glory of God. Justice must be served for our carelessness to God and our preoccupation with ourselves in our own ways instead of his commands. Justice must be served to the fact that we just sort of go on doing life as we like to, being little to no attentive to the commands of God. No justice, no peace. And so justice, friend, must be served in one of two ways for every person on planet Earth. Either justice is served in Jesus' suffering for you at the cross as a substitute for your sin, or justice will be served when Jesus returns on that day like a flash in the sky. And on that day, you will pay. Instead of Jesus paying on your behalf, you will pay. Just as those people in Noah's day, and Lot's day, and Sodom, they had to pay. So will it be for you. Either you trust Jesus to satisfy God's just penalty for your sin, your indifference, your lovelessness towards God and neighbor, or you trust Jesus, or you trust yourself to pay it upon your death 
or the return and or the return of Christ. And friend, let there be no mistake. When Jesus returns, there will be no time to get right with God. That's what Jesus is emphasizing there when he says on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away because on that day, it's gonna be too late. Don't bother going downstairs. It's gonna be too late. It's gonna happen so fast. And so friend, today is the day of salvation. Today, today is the day of salvation. So this is that third response, repenting and believing on Christ, fleeing to the ark. Just as Noah fled to the ark, the ark, as Peter talks about, the ark is Christ. He's the way that we hover over those judgmental waters and not be destroyed. This is God's gracious provision for us to escape that judgment because Christ was judged in our behalf. Will you, friend, trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Or will you trust yourself to pay for it? Look back, friend. Look back at the cross of Christ. Look back, verse 25, to Jesus' suffering and say that while I can't see the kingdom now, I see the price of my redemption at the cross being paid for. I see it there. Secondly, then look around today. This is verse 33. Look, up, look around and be repenting and believing today as you see yourself being indifferent towards him. Verse 33, don't seek to preserve your life. Lose your life in order that in Christ you may find it. In other words, turn away from trying to justify self and turn to Jesus. As you see in your own life, sins, you turn from those. That's how you die. That's how you lose your life. And then you look to Jesus to pay for those sins in today. And then you live. In other words, friends, stop trying to make a name for yourself. Stop trying to eat and drink and find fullness here. Stop trying to make this heaven. Stop trying to build your own kingdom. Lose your life and find the life of Christ in you as you trust him. Find the whole of your identity in, through, and for Christ Jesus. Identify yourself in him and you'll find peace with him. And so look back at the cross the price of your redemption. Look around today, repenting, dying to self, losing self, living to him. And then thirdly, look forward to the day of days when Jesus returns. Some of you guys know that I, I guess it was two or three years ago that I spent my sabbatical studying a lot of this topic, this notion of the hope of heaven, the revelation of Jesus. And what I did was every, day, Monday, every Monday to Friday, I just opened up the Bible in the New Testament and I just would read a passage and I would circle every single time I would see something like this in the Bible. And what I found over those three months was not what I have found in my Christian formation growing up in the church. What I found was that the thrust of the New Testament is oriented towards this day. The revelation of Christ as King and Lord. What I found was that on Every single page, time and time and time again, they're talking about this great day, orienting towards this day. Sort of like, you know, the, the, remember the Mount of Transfiguration where you couldn't see Christ, his flesh was covered up, and you peeled it back and saw it? Everybody's waiting for that day in the New Testament, time and again. His kingdom is in our midst, but it is hidden in plain sight. And so the great hope of the Christian friend is not planting and building in this world, though we do that today. It's not uh, our hope is not in the revealing of some other hope our hope as christians is in the revealing of the present reality of the fact that christ is king and lord right now it's obscured people don't see it 
But a day is going to come when he will, he will show up in that eastern sky. It will flash like lightning. And every person, all tribes, tongues, and nations, they will bow the knee and they will confess with their mouth that Jesus is King and Lord. Everybody will. It will be, in, it will be perceptible. Everybody will know it. That's our hope. That's the day we're waiting on to see him. When he's revealed, finally, right now, throngs of the nations care so little about Jesus. And they go on as though they are king. And we as Christians, our hope is, no, we want them to see Christ as king. And a day's gonna come when he'll be revealed and they'll know it in that moment. They will know it. Somewhere along the way, we Christians have lost sight of that hope. We've traded it for a hope and a house and a car and a job and an administration and vacations and degrees and really big churches and influence. We spend so much time planting and building our own little kingdoms, setting our hope fully on, instead of setting our hope fully on the day of days when Christ is revealed. Oh, beloved, let us rejoice and think about the day. There's a reason why the leper comes in advance of this passage because the day that we look forward to is we have been healed as our leprosy. And when we see him as king and Lord and he is revealed in that eastern sky, we will be like that leper. We will go and fall at his feet. We will not stay away from him. We will go to him and fall at his feet in thanksgiving. Enjoying him. Say, come, you are king, you are Lord. If you guys remember back at the beginning of this pandemic, that seems another lifetime ago. Remember I said that the Lord has sort of sent us to our rooms to do some thinking. And remember, I called us to say, let's come out of this thing different. I posed a challenge to us all that we come out different. We come out more aware of our need for Christ. We come out more aware of our need for each other. And the reality is, friends, I've been changing. I've had all kinds of hopes revealed that I need to die to. I need to learn to stop putting so much hope on a thousand other things, and I need to learn to set my hope fully on the grace that will be given to me on the day that Christ is revealed. And this is where I want to end. If the apostle Peter were here, this sermon seemed to have had a big effect on Peter. If Peter was here preaching this sermon, I think this is how he would end the sermon. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.13, he talks about the coming of Christ and the revelation of him when he returns. And then he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action being sober-minded, here's the command, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, that's Peter's whole deal, man. He's like, you're suffering. If you go read First Peter, you're suffering, you're suffering, you're suffering, you're suffering. But listen, be prepared for action. Set your, uh, be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that we don't even have yet. We've been given a lot of grace. There's a day going to come we're going to get so much grace when Jesus returns and we see him. And you say, how is it we do that? Well, you go to Jesus' command here, remembering Lot's wife. You remember Lot's wife? Judgment comes on, Sodom. She's being led out. And yet what does she do but look back into Sodom? There's nothing wrong with turning her head from one direction to the other. That's not why God judged her. He was pointing to an affection that Lot's wife had for that city. Her interests were divided as she was trying to come out. 
Though she was able to be delivered from the destruction of Sodom, she was leaving, yet her affection for her life in the city of man caused her to look back and destroy her. And so my question that I leave you with, friend, is what about you? Are your interests, your hopes, so tied to this world? Are you akin to Lot's wife? Wanting to get out, yes, but your heart is so still tied to the city of man. Or are you willing to lose your life in the city of man that you might find it in the consummated city of God? Are you willing, beloved, to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be yours, 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 when the lightning flashes and Christ returns to take those that are his home? Finally, are you willing to live by losing, repenting and believing, looking back at the cross, looking around today through own sin, repenting there, trusting in Jesus and looking forward to the day of days? Or will you go on as the days of Noah and the days of Lot? Will you go on as you have been going, like I did that morning on 9-11? Eating and drinking, buying and selling. Will you go on living for these days instead of that day? Which will it be for you, friend? And my call for us all is to weigh that day out. God has loved us today by warning us in advance of his coming. He was kind to you and me today to tell us about this and call us to faith and repentance in advance of his coming. Will you repent and believe? Will you live to him by losing your life? I pray that you would. Let's pray. Lord God, we agree that this world needs justice. Lord, I will say that I know that my life needs a kin of justice. God, we pray that this world would be served justice. We plead for it every day. The crying, the moaning, the suffering has gone on too long. We pray that Jesus would return and return soon. And God, secondly, we pray that we would be ready for that day. It could come in the next five minutes. May these people, may we be ready. There won't be any time when he comes. May we trust him today and live for his glory. May we live for him and his kingdom and not our own. And may we find life therein. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.